The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, you happy warrior. Welcome to the show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. Great to have you together. And uh, for those of you who are regular and timely listeners to the show, my apologies for being two days late with the posting this week. Uh, every now and then that happens. It's um, I w- I'm not going to say it's out of my control because that would turn me into a hapless victim of vague vectors that I have no control over. And, of course, that simply isn't true. Uh, it, At the bottom of it all, I would have to confess that when I am late with a an episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, that is because of bad planning and bad execution on my part. There is no nicer or more polite way to put it. Uh, there is no more exonerating way to put it. Um, it's it's a simple case of uh, culpability, bad organization, bad execution, and it makes me feel terrible because the show is supposed to uh, be up on the weekend and not on Mondays. But anyway, uh, many of you listen to it days and in some cases weeks later, and in for you it's not going to make any difference really. But thanks for being here, and thank you for spending a little more time with me as we together explore how the world really works. Now, uh, look, um, if you are able to get up in the morning and head out to do battle with those parts of the world that you are trying to defeat, uh, if you embark in a spirit of optimism, then you are going to perform better, far better, in fact, than were you to wearily drag yourself out of bed and trudge dismally off to work. But uh, when you're able to leap out of bed and, f- and find yourself and make yourself filled with a spirit of excitement and optimism, uh, you are way ahead of the game and will outperform your alternative self. Uh, That is in business, financial matters, in social, uh, even in romantic, in in every possible way. Now, uh, optimism, feeling that things are going to go your way, very helpful, even as we all know in reality, that a normal day for normal human beings has its normal share of disappointments. Nonetheless, going out with that belief makes it a much better day and gives you a better shot at success. Now, the point is that that is a belief, not a fact. There is no way that you can be factually assured There is no evidence that can turn it into a fact that you are going to have a terrific day. There isn't. It is simply a case of belief. And 
beliefs are incredibly important. As a matter of fact, they are more important than facts when it comes to shaping our behavior and building us the kind of lives we desire and bringing about the outcomes we aim for, beliefs are more important than facts. Oh, we certainly have to have knowledge. We certainly have to know things. But in terms of what will most effectively shape our actions, beliefs do the trick. Uh, How do we change our beliefs? Uh, Mostly by reading and by writing. And so those of you who have already uh, learned and understood my principles from ancient Jewish wisdom about the things you should be writing at the beginning of your day and the things you should be writing at the end of your day, then you already have real-life experience of this. And I receive beautiful, beautiful letters from many different people uh, speaking about the impact these things have had on their lives. Uh, Yes, when you write down certain things, it can impact your belief. Uh, What else impacts your belief is reading, reading the right things. And obviously what I'm excluding here is watching. Uh, I cannot adequately emphasize how little real value you gain from time invested in watching screens Uh, There is absolutely no return on investment there. There isn't. But if you read, there really is, Uh, which suggests that um, if you look around your home, please take a serious and critical look around your home. What I want to know is how soon after you walk in the front door do you see books? Now, I have been in homes that are beautifully elegant, sparkling, clean, spartan, with elegant furnishings and beautiful wall treatments and lights that not only shine light but are delightful to look at, but there's not a book in sight. And it it concerns me. It worries me. Uh, I know of a young man um, who is now very happily married to a young lady whom I recommended that he meet. And um, he came to see me after his first date. And I said, how did it go? He said, well, I really liked her, but I cannot marry her. And I said, well, okay, then if you can't, you can't. But just as a matter of interest, why? He said, because when I arrived at her home to pick her up, Her parents were very nice, but there wasn't a single book to be seen. I sat in the living room for a while. They brought me into the dining room. I saw two houses. I saw two rooms. I saw a hallway. I didn't see a single bookcase, not a single book. He said, that means that she didn't grow up in a home where ideas are discussed. And that, that, that spells doom to me. I can't do that. Can't marry somebody like that. I was puzzled by this, and I called up the girl's father, whom I knew, chatted with him a while. It didn't take long before he mentioned that his daughter had met this guy and that he'd met him as well. I said, what did you think of him? He said, well, 
you know, we, we only had about 10 minutes to chat while my daughter got ready, but uh, certainly seemed a very nice guy, and uh, I hope he and my daughter spend a little more time getting to know one another. I said, well, I don't know that that's going to happen. Let me tell you what he told me, and, and I, I will tell you, it, it baffles me a little bit. Knowing you as I do, I am puzzled. This is not what I expected to hear. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, uh, this guy made the observation that you had no books in your home. And he burst out laughing. He barely let me finish the sentence. And he said, uh, I think I've got a library of at least 3,000 books. Between my wife and myself, we've accumulated at least 3,000 books that we cherish. I said, so what's going on? He says, very simple. He said, my wife has a certain decorating flair and a certain look she likes. And so for the public rooms of the house, like the dining room and particularly the living room, I was perfectly happy to let her have a way because I really couldn't care less. So in those rooms, she, she went for a very uh, spare look. Um, and in the, uh, in the other rooms of the house, he said, particularly my study, we even have a little library. He said, those are packed with books. Well, I was very relieved, and I said... Uh, well, I said, uh, do me a favor. Next time this young man swings by to pick up your daughter and she keeps him waiting, as she probably will, uh, just um, take him into your study to chat. And he laughed and he said, well, of course I will. Never occurred to me. And I said, you've got to be aware of that. A house, a home with no books visible radiates a certain impression. But even more importantly than that, when you've got books available, when you have books around, then you are more likely to pick one up. And if you're, if you're sitting down, you, you, look, you know, I love my bookcases. Um, I, I very often walk in and I stroll up and down the bookcases for a, a moment or two till I find something that catches my eye. And it's usually a long-lost treasure that I've read years ago. I haven't looked at recently, and I'm just delighted to, to pick it up and uh, spend 15 minutes while I'm waiting for something to happen uh, reading that book. It's a good thing. So I, I just recommend, particularly if you're raising children, then it's a foregone conclusion. But even if the most important person you're raising is you, right, you have primary responsibility for you, then uh, having books around is just a good thing. And I, I realize that today uh, we have e-books and Kindles and everything else, and, I, and, and they have their value. They have their use. There's no question about it. I make use of it myself. But there is also something to be said for having books that mean something to you in proper paper form on your bookshelf um, because, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Big difference between having a paper book and a book that is essentially an arrangement of electrons. Very big difference indeed. Okay, so um, moving right on from books and beliefs idea your beliefs are shaped more by reading than by watching something why is that because it involves time and thought there's cognitive process going on with watching there is by design no time for any thinking uh, as a matter of fact more so than before the 1960s and this is something you can do as reliably as I did myself, which is test the difference. The length of scenes in black and white movies, particularly prior to 1960, 
uh, was measured in minutes. Today, the length of scenes is measured in seconds. By length of scene, you know what I mean, right? When the uh, when the camera angle changes or when the, something changes, but an uninterrupted scene is a scene. And today they lost seconds. People's attention span is different, and uh, whether it's cause or effect, I'm not sure. But uh, people used to watch a scene for a lengthy period of time. Today, uh, producers and directors know you've got to keep it moving fast. Fast moving is the name of the game. People are being trained and conditioned that way. And people who are watching more than reading have difficulty concentrating for any period of time. So there in itself is another very good reason for keeping books around and reading. Because while the idea is being communicated to you over the passage of several sentences, your mind is working and building a structure in which to house that idea. And so reading the right books will help you inculcate the right beliefs. And beliefs are very important indeed. Um, would you leap onto a ticking bomb to save a group of relative strangers waiting at the bus stop with you? Right, imagine, you know, there you are with a group of people waiting at a bus stop. All of a sudden, um, some car drives by, stops, person jumps out, puts a bomb on the uh, sidewalk right next to you, and jumps in the car and s s screams away, and you can see... The time bomb is ticking down. You know how they show in the movies, five, four, three, and there it is. It's two, and there's barely time. Even if you warned everybody, they wouldn't get far enough away before it would explode. And so the only way to, to help them, if that's what you want to do, is throw yourself on that bomb. Would you do it? Right? Probably not, and that's with no criticism at all. Well, uh, in uh, the Battle of Iwo Jima in the Pacific during World War II, uh, there was a United States Marine called Jack Lucas, who uh, two Japanese grenades landed exactly where he and his buddies were in a trench, and uh, he grabbed off his steel helmet and put it over the two grenades and threw himself on top of the helmets, and... Um, Everybody survived. Uh, you know, he lived the rest of his life with hundreds of pieces of shrapnel in his body, but he survived. Uh, but everyone else survived because of his action. And more recently, in 2008, it was in Afghanistan that a British Royal Marine by the name of Croucher uh, used his gear to pin a grenade to the ground. A, a grenade bounced into the room they were in. And uh, he jumped, he threw down his, his uh, body armor and lay on it, and uh, it absorbed the majority of the blast. Uh, two years later, in Helmand uh, province in Afghanistan, another United States Marine, Lance Corporal Carpenter, he threw himself on a grenade that landed on a rooftop and saved fellow Marines uh, while he himself got serious injuries to his uh, to the right side of his body, lost an eye. Uh, I'm pointing out these things. These things happen. They they are real world events. These people do these things, um, and they don't always live. Uh, there was a guy, John Andrew Barnes, got the Medal of Honor posthumously. He jumped on a grenade to save the lives of wounded comrades during the Vietnam War. 
um, a Navy SEAL, Michael Monsur, died um, in, uh, in Ramadi in Iraq, where he smothered a grenade with his body, saving his comrades, uh, also again on a rooftop in Iraq, uh, saving Iraqi soldiers and also some SEAL buddies. Um, how, how do people do this sort of thing? How are people willing to act so altruistically? It's called altruistic suicide because they're, they're not just taking their own lives. They're giving their lives to save other people. How do people do it? So most of these stories uh, take place in the military. And in the military, there's an inculcation, inculcation of a culture or, if you like, a belief system. Uh, if you were unified and very tightly shared an entire worldview and common beliefs with your buddies, there is a chance that you would do that. Just an ordinary member of the public, probably not so much. But bear in mind, of course, that during basic training, nobody, no drill sergeant ever got up and said, don't forget, grenade lands next to you, throw yourself on it to save your buddies. Right, never happened. Nobody ever said that. And yet, it's what people do. Because when you develop a belief, it shapes how you're going to act. And that's what these things are. It's not enough to say just the same culture. It's got to be beliefs. It's deeper than a culture. It's something that really penetrates, not through your brain, but to your very heart, to your soul. The um, uh, in 1887, uh, 1787, excuse me, pardon me, uh, there was the um, uh, 1787, I think that's when it was, 1787, uh, the Northwest Ordinance in the United States took place. So up till that point, for the most part, organized settlement was just east, only found to be east of a huge long range of mountains that runs from the northeast to the southwest, sort of not quite paralleling the eastern seaboard of the United States. And it's got different names in different places, called the Allegheny Mountains in, uh, in Pennsylvania. It's called the Adirondack Mountains further north, uh, and so on and so forth. But it's the same big long range. And... Uh, when you drive through it, you are filled with nothing but astonished amazement at the early American pioneers who moved through that to settle. Initially, it was the Ohio Valley, and the, uh, Confederate, the, the Confederate government before the Constitution, this is 1787, so it's a few years before the Constitution came about. They were still operating on, if you like, the first Constitution. Uh, they then came up and voted on the Northwest Ordinance, which was the system of governance which would apply west of the mountains. And, and based on that, a, a whole group of very hardy pioneers, uh, descendants of all those who had settled New England, uh, they picked themselves up and began to settle the Ohio Valley. Uh, one of the early towns was Marietta, not Marietta, Georgia, but Marietta, Ohio, on the Ohio River. And the Ohio River was the, was the uh, main thoroughfare 
of transport up and down that corridor. But these were amazing people. Uh, and when you read about them, they were incredibly great human beings. What do I mean by great human beings? Well, number one, they didn't see themselves as helpless victims of circumstance. They saw themselves of the, as their most important agents of change. Very important point. Uh, they never complained because when you complain, you make the people around you miserable. They radiated happiness. They were optimistic. They were very hardworking. They were generous. They were scrupulously honest. They were stoic. They could take anything. Not surprisingly, they succeeded under grueling, painful, difficult, tormenting circumstances in those early years, the closing years of the 18th century in the Ohio Valley. That's who settled that part of the country, and they were extraordinary people. What did they have? They had belief. That was, that's what did it. It was beliefs. And what I want to stress to you is how important it is to get rid of your bad beliefs and to inculcate in you, in their place, good beliefs. Because beliefs do cause action in certain ways. It's really important to understand that, to really understand it. If you don't like certain aspects of your behavior, then we try and find the underlying belief that fuels that behavior, and you try and change it. You get rid of it. If you want to behave in certain ways, then there are certain beliefs that stimulate that desired kind of behavior. You've got to now try and acquire those beliefs. That's how this works. Um, let me give you a sad example. Think of a young woman with a serious eating disorder. Right? She believes that she's overweight. Now, anybody who looks at her knows this isn't right. It's not true. She's wrong. It's a bad belief. But she thinks herself as overweight, and it's a very strong belief. So strong that we, in fact, view it as a disorder. But regardless of what kind of label we give it, the important thing to bear in mind now is that it is a belief. And what do young women with such a bad belief do? Um, they don't eat. They get dangerously underweight. They get very thin. They make themselves throw up. Uh, horrible, bad things, unhealthy things, because a belief is the most significant factor that regulates and, and stimulates certain behavior. Uh, a man has a deep, deep belief that he's a female, right? Now, <clears throat> it's wrong, it's dangerous, it's bad, it's a bad belief. Now, of course, today, because it is so important in the prevailing culture to pretend that men and women are exactly the same, even though people deep down have to know it's not the case, we're not allowed to call this a disorder. 
fact, there are many things like that. People speak all the time about, oh, the, the temperatures rising, global warming, climate change, huge problems. Everybody knows the oceans are rising and, um, and uh, it's going to wipe out low-lying areas of low-lying coastal cities. Look, I wish people would buy more into that belief. Because when I met somebody a few months ago who lives in um, uh, southeast Florida, he lives on the Atlantic coast of Florida, and he has a beautiful home on the ocean, um, in, uh, not, not as far north as Palm Beach, but um, I hoped that he would have a deep, deep belief in global warming, climate change, rising sea levels, because I figured that way he would accept a very low-ball offer I made for his property. He'd be grateful for me. He'd be grateful to me for being willing to take off his hands a doomed piece of real estate. Do you think he lowered his price one little bit? <laughs> of course not. But at the same, the same guy at a dinner party the previous night went on for 10 minutes in a loud voice about how important it is to work against global warming. So he, his belief isn't a real belief. If it was, he'd be willing to sell his property for cheap. And so um, a guy has a, a bad belief that he is a female. And, um, and what does he do? If we let him, if we don't intervene and provide him with some psychiatric help, what happens is he goes in for irreversible genital mutilation in his quest to make his body match his belief of himself. Believes he's a woman, that's what happens. Uh, you can do very awful things as a uh, when, when your belief drives you in that direction. And, of course, you can do very wonderful things when your belief drives your, you in that direction. Um, if you happen to be a Bible-believing Jewish mother of a newborn boy, you're going to have your son circumcised, right? Even though you can't possibly bring yourself to watch the operation, and when you hear this tiny little voice of your eight-day-old infant cry out at the pain, an invisible steel band clutches you around the chest, right? What possible reason can there be for such a Jewish mother to go through this, this ordeal for her? It's not easy. Only belief. Belief makes us act in certain and certain ways, and those ways are often predictable. When we know what the belief is, we can usually predict the behavior. Look, one of the most dangerous beliefs is that people and animals are the same thing, that people are just another variation on the indescribably vast variety of life on the spectrum of human of animal existence on this planet you've got all kinds of different animals including uh, whales and including uh, primates things like baboons and orangutans and chimpanzees and uh, and you've got human beings and obviously an entire branch of science 
Darwinian evolution arose not as a, not not as the cause of the belief that people are animals, but as a result of the belief that people are animals. This is very widespread, and uh, and people who find themselves susceptible to all aspects of science, and very few people are, by the way, people who are very susceptible to scientific ideas that people are, after all, animals. By the way, scientific or s doesn't necessarily mean true, right? It means it is something that is held by a certain number of scientists at the present time, but one of the whole points of science is that things are up for grabs, always are accepting evolution, which people will not accept is up for grabs, and accepting for climate science, climate change, not up for grabs. You get labeled a denier, and yet in, in years gone by, to be a denier in the world of science was a badge of the highest honor. It meant you were questioning the current dogma, and you were exploring the possibility that there might be a more correct explanation for certain physical phenomena that we see, including the structure of the atom, by the way. When Rutherford came up with his model of the atom, long before Niels Bohr, everybody in the popular world thought he was right. Now we know what the atom looks like. And then along came a Rutherford denier, and he said, no, I don't think it looks like that at all. I think it's a cloud of electrons traveling in orbitals, and it was subjected to testing. You know, nobody threw stones at him, because that's what you're supposed to do in science. But if you question climate change or you question evolution, those are, uh, which gives you some idea uh, of just <laughs> what scientism really means today. Uh, people who will swear to you that Darwinian evolution is not a theory, it's established science. They are the same ones who will tell you that um, a uh, fetus, a baby in the womb, eight months old, a month before delivery, is not really a human being. That, that's what they'll tell you. I, but the science says it is. Well, the science didn't used to because we never had ultrasounds, we never had all kinds of technologies we now have that are able to establish that, yes, it is a little person. And uh, so people are very discriminatory on the science they accept and embrace and the science they are hostile towards and to which they reject. But this uh, scientific notion that people are animals is a belief. Is it science? Of course not. There is a theory along those lines, but it's a theory that is becoming increasingly untenable, or to use the popular lingo of the day, unsustainable. Right? It is becoming increasingly more difficult for a variety of reasons. I could do a whole show on this, but there, there are real experts on the topic. If you're interested in following up on it, uh, I would suggest that, uh, that you look at people like David Galunter and other people like that who, um, <clears throat> who are not necessarily religious and who are not looking to substitute a biblical vision. All they're saying is, as pure scientists and as very competent scientists, they're saying, hey, back to the drawing board. Darwinian evolution isn't making sense. 
And it's not scientific to say, well, it has to be true because we haven't got any other explanation. That's not a scientific, that's dogma. That's the way they used to criticize the church for speaking in medieval times. But um, today you get that kind of uh, uh, dull, um, empty grasping for hope, not in the church but in the halls of academic science. And so uh, people believing that we are animals is still very prevalent, and you will find that scientists look for constantly looking for evolutionary explanations for certain things. And it's, it's very, very difficult in many cases. Um, human beings... Men and women, human beings, have chins, although chins are different in men and in women. But human beings have chins. Uh, the group of animals that, that uh, animals, that people, animal theorists want to claim as our closest relatives, uh, namely baboons, do not have these things. So they struggle to find some benefit that the chin, right, that little protrusion beneath your mouth, that chin is of evolutionary use. But so far, they've not been able to come up with anything. Um, what evolutionary property does the membrane that marks virginity in a human female? Right? Not, found, not found in every animal, not found in every mammal, not found in every primate. What, what evolutionary purpose does that serve? And if you look hard enough or struggle uh, strenuously enough you end up with some kind of explanation that is biological for the presence of a hymen or the presence of a chin or the presence of a vacuum, absence of a vacuum, and so on and so forth. But it, it's always, they always try and find, well, it doesn't serve an evolutionary purpose, etc., etc. But the reality is that there is a spiritual purpose for all of these things. You want to know the spiritual purpose of a chin? We'll do that in a future show. It will be a distraction uh, from the topic for today. Uh, today I'm talking about the power of beliefs and the danger of this commonly held belief that people are animals. And what I am about to show you is that, number one, you may be subconsciously impacted by this so as that it is automatically a part of your belief system that it's something you've not thought about a whole lot but by and large yeah probably you know why we're here because uh, primitive protoplasm turned into amino acids and through the impact of lightning they turn into amoeba and other single cell creatures and eventually over billions of years or millions of years or tens of billions of years, whatever time is needed for these incredibly impossible transitions to take place, the transitions did take place and crocodiles turned into horses, which turned into baboons, they turned into people, and it still continues. Uh, who knows what we will look like down the road? Maybe Point one is that on some subtle subconscious level, you have been effectively propagandized into believing this. This is possible. And uh, number two, I want you to know that the way you act and don't act is then, as a result, sadly impacted by this wrong belief. In other words, if you're not where you want to be, um, 
in terms of relationships, both romantic and economic, uh, financial and, um, and social, if you're not where you want to be, then it's time to examine beliefs. And the most likely culprit is a subtle but deep-rooted belief you may well have that people are just a sophisticated form of animals. Huge implications, and I want to show you a little bit about that. Uh, but be assured that if you do have a belief that people and animals are the same, good luck to you because you are unquestionably going to uh, find that how you live your life and how you interact with other people is indeed a function of this belief. Uh, another thing about beliefs is that people tend to want to evangelize their beliefs. I don't know if you've noticed that. What, whatever the beliefs are, um, even um, I, I find quite often when I go to speak to a church, you know, out of, out of several thousand people in the audience, there are always some younger, less experienced, but very ardent and, and very devoted uh, Christian members of the church, and, and I love it. I mean, I find it so moving when they come up to me and ask me if they can talk to me about the New Testament, and they'd like to speak to me about embracing Jesus as my Savior. That's what they want to, and uh, and if there is a um, an older and more experienced, sometimes the pastor himself will put his arm on the uh, young person's shoulder and say to him or her, um, I think you probably would be better off um, not having this conversation with a rabbi. And I usually at that point, I say, usually I thank the person. I say, I know that your Christian belief is one of the dearest things to you in your entire life. It is a belief of paramount importance. So I really feel flattered that, that your love for me is manifested by your wanting to share with me something so precious. But I prefer remaining focused on the things that we have in common, namely the Bible, God's plan for human interaction, both economic, marital, romantic, social, uh, rather than focusing on the theology in which we differ. And, you know, everybody smiles and it's okay. But I totally understand the desire to evangelize. And uh, there are Jews who do it as well. However, Jews do not evangelize people of other faiths. Uh, they do evangelize fallen away Jews. They seek out Jews who are Jewish by culture and by ethnicity, people who grew up with either Jewish parents or Jewish grandparents, but have dropped all kinds of connection with God. And there are many Jewish groups who feel a deep need to evangelize their beliefs to their fellow Jews who are, shall we say, lost in that sense. But uh, even if the beliefs are, are not religious per se, but they are beliefs in um, global warming or they are beliefs in, in um, uh, that we're running out of gasoline, whatever it is, people do feel a need to share their beliefs with others. And the reason, one of the reasons is that our deepest form of companionship comes from people with whom we share beliefs. Please hear me say that one more time. Our deepest form of human connection comes when we share with, we are, are with people with whom we share beliefs, right? Not facts. 
if we all know how to do the differential and the integral calculus, that doesn't make us brothers. We don't feel particularly close. Right? If we both know how to repair uh, fine engines on fine automobiles, we know those facts doesn't necessarily make us companions. Now, if we both have love affairs with BMW cars, then we might be part of a BMW car owner's club, and we'd feel an affinity there because we believe that BMW is the finest car in the world. By the way, I'm not saying that's my belief at all, but uh, it's a certainly a very fine car, but I wouldn't go as far as that, and I wouldn't probably wouldn't join a car club either. But... Um, but I can readily understand a deep companionship coming from people who share beliefs like that. So this is one of the reasons when you can share or spread a belief with somebody, you are increasing your social circle of people you feel close to. And existential loneliness is the worst thing, right? None of us like that feeling of loneliness. We do anything to get away from it. And uh, I've spoken about this in previous shows, but uh, when you feel that there's just no one, you know, and particularly single people are more prone to this, provided you've been smart enough to make sure that not only have you married somebody with whom you share beliefs, but the two of you as part of your marriage nurturing system program, hear me clearly, part of your marriage nurturing program, you make sure that you and your spouse engage in activities that regenerate your shared beliefs whatever it is by the way uh, a marriage can be a strong marriage if if you both believe in bmw cars to to go back to that perhaps frivolous example so uh, shared beliefs very important ideally you want to marry somebody with whom you have a shared belief at least over basic and important beliefs uh, religion is obviously first in that list but uh if for one reason or another you've made the decision that this person you want to marry, although you don't share beliefs, is so ideal in every possible way uh, that you are willing to go ahead on the proviso that you both agree that you are going to have to engage in marriage nurturing activities that revolve around bringing about shared beliefs. And that is, by the way, at the heart when I do marriage coaching that is one of the tools in my toolbox when, you know, she doesn't listen to me, he doesn't respect me, doesn't, you know, the usual panoply of, of uh, complaints we all know and understand from marriage. Uh, at the same time, we, the smart thing to do is to probe for the underlying belief that is generating that behavior. When you found the belief, then you can work on the belief. But the belief is the fuel that drives the behavior. You, it, it's, it's almost futile to try and change the behavior, leaving the belief in place. Um, you know, it's like uh, a bad growth that is exuding pus into the body, a, a poisonous substance into the body, and you, you, you take out the poison, but you leave in the uh, tumor or the organism that's generating the, the poison. That doesn't work. And so it is in, in our business careers. There may be things we are doing, behaviors in which we engage that are counterproductive, and they are generated by behaviors we have. You, you don't work on just curing the behavior. You work on curing the underlying belief, changing it. And so, um, and so you'll find that 
people enjoy and feel an urge to spread their beliefs because doing so expands their, their world. It makes their world less lonely. And also, you tend to believe that your beliefs are true. Okay, that's one of the things about belief. And our souls drag our convictions into conformity with our beliefs. I'm telling you things here that are each, each one deserves an entire show. But I know that some of you think deeply about these matters, and you will find this to be extremely helpful in developing your self-awareness. Right? And knowing ourselves is a very important first step in becoming better at almost every aspect of successful living. And so uh, be aware that we do tend to believe that our beliefs are true. And that means that other people around us who do not share those beliefs, well, that means they're heretics. They believe in something false. And to a believer, a heretic is very hard to take. Um, one of the best, strongest belief systems, there, there are not many left today. Uh, there really aren't many, but there was a period during the 20th century where both in America and in uh, Russia and in China, there were true communist believers. And you were able to get people to kill their parents as the, re as the result of communist belief. It's an incredibly important and powerful belief system. And when people believe it, the actions are reliable and predictable. And that's one of the reasons that it wasn't enough in communist tyrannies. It was never enough to merely regulate people's behavior. We had to regulate people's beliefs. And when you regulate people's beliefs, you need a way to do that. And communism used to call them re-education camps. In Russia, they often used to send people with the wrong beliefs to psychiatric hospitals. They used to send them to uh, re-education camps. China was big on re-education camps. It's a place you send people to when you don't like their beliefs and you want to change their beliefs. One of the reasons I call public schools in America geeks government indoctrination centers or camps is because that's exactly what they are. They are places specifically designed to inculcate a certain set of beliefs in the next generation of voters in America. And one of the best ways of inculcating the right beliefs, books. That's right, exactly, books. And uh, if you have... Um, shelves and shelves full of books in your house. Let's say you've got uh, teenage kids or pre-teenage kids. Uh, if they are typical of today, uh, they may well be spending a lot of time on a screen already. And part of you rebels at the notion of imposing screen-free family time because your children might say to you, what are we supposed to do? That's not fair. Well, how can you tell us we're not allowed to use our iPads or our screens or our devices or our phone? Why? Well, well, we can't do that. What are we supposed to do? And if you can answer, well, because screen-free time is book time in this family, then you're ahead of the game. And I'm not saying it will 
transfer without uh, rebellion, without resistance, without uh, sometimes discouraging uh, opposition from your children. But if you stick to it, you will be able to institute screen-free hours. And who knows, you might even be able to introduce a screen-free day. Uh, so, for instance, in my family, Saturday is a screen-free day. Everybody knows just how it is. Uh, it's the Sabbath, no devices, no phones, no computers, no iPads, no nothing. Well, what are we supposed to do? The answer, books. And uh, you're doing, don't let anybody tell you that information gained by books is exactly the same as information gained by electronic devices and vice versa. Uh, on other shows, I've devoted considerable time to the difference between getting information through your eyes and through your ears. And needless to say, uh, even though you are using your eyes to read words in a book, I think everybody understands that what you are looking at are not pictures, but abstract symbols for ideas and things. And it's taking in your mind, the process occurs of translating. And that is such an important part of developing a person's cognitive abilities, including our own, by the way. I'm not just talking about children. I'm saying you are your most important child. Would you remember that? You are your most important child. It really is important for you to make sure you raise yourself properly. It's important to, for you to educate yourself properly. It's important for you to get rid of your bad beliefs just as it is important to get rid of your children's bad beliefs. It's important to inculcate in yourself the right beliefs, just as it's important to inculcate in your children the right beliefs. That's right. And so among the beliefs that is so damaging and so destructive that I want to focus on today, it is the animal equals people lie. This belief is very, very seductive. Right? I, I really do understand it. I do get it. I, I'll go further than that. I'm going to say it's perfectly natural and perfectly normal to think of yourself as an animal. I'd say that's the almost the default condition. If you're not raised to believe in a creation model in which God created animals and then he created people, different category, different story, different creature. If you're not raised in that, if you don't know anything about that, then I'm sure the natural default condition is to think of yourself as an animal. Um, I think my children used to play a game, uh, what sort of animal, if you were an animal, what sort of animal would you be? And, a, and I recall on car journeys, this provided hours of entertainment. Um, how about Indian warriors? Um, some of the names of great Indian, American Indian chiefs. I'm sorry, did I offend anybody? Native Americans. Um, the, uh, some of those names are terrific. You remember Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, um, the Miami War Chief. And by the way, surprisingly, not down in Florida, but in the Ohio area in the 1700s and 18th century. Um, so there was a big battle called the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Um, it, it was fought round about where Toledo, Ohio is today. And um, 
it was fought in the closing years of the 1700s, like maybe 794, 1795, somewhere there. And um, the, the Indian chief of the Miamis was Little Turtle. Uh, there was a chief called Spotted Elk. There was a chief called Little Wolf, White Bull, Black Fox, Black Snake, Little Crow, uh, Red Horse. These are, are famous Native American chieftains. And it makes perfect sense that if you have zero awareness of the Bible, then you are naturally going to think of yourself as a super animal, but an animal nonetheless. And these names would tend to reflect that. And you've just got to remember, like, here's, here's the lesson to take away from today's show. Beliefs are what cause actions. Not facts, beliefs. You know what one of the most difficult actions to do is to get rid of a habit? Now, smoking is more than a habit because there's actually even a, uh, an organic element that we tend to think of as an addiction today. Uh, giving up smoking is very, very difficult. People do it not because of facts, but because of beliefs. Very few people, if ever any, gave up because of a stupid printout on the side of a cigarette pack. The Surgeon General has determined that smoking is dead. I mean, this is socialistic nonsense, printing this kind of stuff. Uh, only an ignoramus would think that that's going to change anyone's behavior. Outside hotels, in the front door of hotels in California, there's now a, a plaque which says, inside this building, there could be carcinogenic substances which could be dangerous to expectant women, etc., etc. Do you think anybody actually stops going into the hotel? Do you think anyone pays any? No, because facts make absolutely no difference to our conduct, to our behavior. But when somebody you know died of uh, smoking-caused uh, lung disease or something, that impacts you. And I've asked hundreds, I'm sure hundreds, at various speeches. I've asked people to tell me, if you've given up smoking, what made you give up smoking? Almost nobody ever said, well, I heard that smoking is dangerous. No, every, everybody knew that. No, a belief changed it. And when a lot of people are infected by a belief, and I say infected because beliefs do travel like viruses, and when a large number of people are infected with a belief, just look at the belief of, uh, of climate change, by the way. Uh, it's simply not true. It's complete and utter nonsense. And yet it's a widespread belief. And it's spread like lightning. It's spread like measles or, or avian flu. Um, when a large number of people are infected with a belief, uh, you can have street protests, riots, mass demonstrations, Right, Hong Kong is a case in point at the time I'm preparing this show. Uh, needless to say, obviously, it is belief that made people slit the throats of airline stewardesses and fly airplanes full of passengers into buildings. That was beliefs. It wasn't facts. And religious belief is not the only belief. Although, in a way... I think we could categorize all beliefs as religious in nature, although they may have nothing whatsoever to do with God. But I, I would think that the belief of environmentalism is very religious in nature. I think the belief of communism is very religious in nature. The, the belief that people are just another form of animals has enormous implications.
and 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 an enormous impact on what believers in that doctrine do, how they live their lives, and how they interact with others. And if you are to any extent infected with that belief that people equals animals, and it's very easy to be, by the way, don't for a moment think I'm pointing any fingers. Uh, this has been a nonstop, constant barrage, probably for as long as you've been alive. This has been a constant theme. Almost everything you read, in some way or another, goes back to the, you know, you, you'll read that, um, uh, oh, there's a, uh, uh, an addiction problem in the country, uh, whether it's an addiction to gambling or an addiction to opioids, or whatever what people want to, sp well, they'll explain, yes, because um, in biological and evolutionary terms, this and this, this happened. How about speaking about soul and spiritual terms? They don't know how to do that because the culture has been completely captured by the people equals animals dogma. Please don't think for a moment that America is not a religious country. It is. It is in the United States of America. We have two religions, not one. In, we lie every time we say the anthem. We say the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God. It's not true. We're two nations under at least two gods. It's two different belief systems in America today, not facts, beliefs. And as a result, people behave in certain predictable ways. Really, we do have to understand that. And, um, and we've got to know how easy it is for us to gain the belief that people are animals and the fact that this has real, real results. Um, you, you cannot overestimate how important it is for you to identify the beliefs that have taken root in your soul and how critically important it is to make sure that you rid yourself of the wrong beliefs and adopt correct beliefs. Look, let me tell you the most dangerous impact of people equals animal dogma. If that dogma has found a home in your heart, then you deep down believe, here's what you say to yourself, I can't change what I am. I can't help it. That's what I am. I am what I am. Look, a cat or a cow or a camel or a kangaroo are going to be a cat or a cow or a camel or a kangaroo next month, next year, and in five years' time if they're alive. They're not going to change, and I'm an animal. What do you want from me? I am what I am. Stop trying to change me. Those are the things you say, think, and feel when the dogma of animal equals people has taken root. Tragically, there are many people whose lives are stalled. There are many people who have no reason to suppose that tomorrow is going to be any better than today. And that is because in their hearts they're saying, I am what I am. Can't help it. I, I, I am what I am. I'm, I'm, an animal is a victim. Whether my dog eats or not depends on me. It doesn't depend on him. It's very simple. And so whether I have more money today than I had yesterday, it only depends on my ability to change. And while an animal does not change, the whole point of being a human being created in the image of God is that we can change. Yesterday, 
you might have been a drug addict who has not worked a day in the last five years, and tomorrow you could resolve to change. Painfully, stressfully, it's hard, but the reality is that you and I both know people who are today living lives of unarguable success, people who are happy and fulfilled, who 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, were in the depths of despair and whose lives, <clears throat> whose lives were hopeless and going absolutely nowhere. An animal in bad shape is an animal in bad shape. Not, nothing's changing, but a human being can change. But if you are infected with that belief that I am what I am, I can't help it, right? My life is what it is. If you're infected with that, the only way to stop that poison wreaking its havoc in your life is to stop the tumor that produces that poison. And that is the belief that an animal and you are the same, that you're just another variety of animals. Here's something else that happens. When enough people accept this belief and enough people devote themselves to the doctrine that people equals animals, then you cannot punish criminals, right? In some municipalities in the Netherlands right now, anyone leaving possessions in an unlocked car gets uh, prosecuted and punished more than the thief who takes them. In San Francisco, if you leave a gun in a locked car, you get a worse punishment than the thief who steals it, right? Because we, we do the same thing with animals, right? When a wolf devours the sheep or the cow of a farmer, we don't hold a conference to discuss the deteriorating morality of wolves, and we don't seek out a wolf to um, conduct a, uh, a, a punishing foray. We don't do that. We say to the farmer, hey, tough luck. Next time you'll learn to look after your livestock better. That's all. And as soon as you believe that people are animals, then we no longer punish criminals, but we punish the law-abiding, the citizens, the farmers. And we say, hey, you put the stuff in your car. The, the criminal did what criminals do. He's an animal. He stole. Now, you went and put the stuff there. It's your fault. You made him do it. And that's what they say. And so, uh, um, furthermore, I tell you, in parts of the United States of America, where the courts punish people now depends on their economic status. I mean, it's, it's really shocking. But there are judges who provide more lenient sentences or no sentence to a defendant, a criminal defendant, who he's perceived as poor. Now, it's very important to distinguish between deprived and depraved. Many, many, many people have nothing, not because they're deprived. Nobody's deprived them of anything. They are depraved. For years, they've been living their lives in such a way so as to produce this horrible negative outcome. And we tend to say, oh, they must be deprived. They have nothing. They weren't deprived. A depraved lifestyle from them and their parents and their grandparents created the problem they're in. Depraved 
and deprived are not the same. And so we now find in courts that poverty is just another proof that we are just a variety of animal and that it's not right. Some, an animal does something wrong, you don't punish the animal. It does what its instincts lead it to do. How strange is it not? You can be quite sure that a generation or two ago, you had a relative who studied the Bible. And in Leviticus 19, verse 15, there was a verse that your ancestor did not understand. You know what it says? Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kinsmen fairly. Don't show favor to the poor. I can understand a judge favoring the rich. But what on earth is the Bible doing warning us that a judge must never favor the poor? Well, because God knew that as people begin to believe they're animals, the court system will favor the poor and penalize the rich. And that's exactly where the United States is at right now. So is the United Kingdom, by the way. Maybe other countries as well. I'm not up, to, up with that. Uh, listen to Exodus chapter 23. The beginning of Exodus chapter 23, verse 2 and 3. You shall, um, uh, you, shall, you shall not side with the mighty, speaking to judges. You shall not side with the powerful to judge wrongly. You shall not give distorted testimony in a dispute so as to pervert justice in favor of the mighty, nor shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute. And today in the United States of America, if a poor person comes up against a rich person, the courts and public opinion favors the poor over the rich. Who would have believed that would ever happen? It's pretty obvious. If you look at the manufacturer's instruction manual that I know as the Bible, then you will see it was very obvious. As human society abandons the right belief, the human heart is not good with no belief. Nature abhors a vacuum. And if you let the right beliefs out of your heart, the wrong beliefs will sneak in. Pretty obvious, isn't it? And the wrong belief, the most seductive wrong belief, is that people equals animals. And the results of that, unbelievable. You can't change what you are, right? You are what you are. So you're condemning yourself to whatever your current situation is. Don't ever live in hope of your life improving because you're an animal. And talking of, of animals, criminal, no punishing criminals. It's going to become increasingly unsafe to walk on the streets of a a city that has abandoned faith because people will behave like animals and get away with it because nobody's going to want to punish them. And what do animals do? They defecate wherever they choose. Well, guess what's happening in San Francisco and Seattle and many other countries around the world where the people equals animal doctrine has taken hold as a belief in the hearts of mankind? people defecate in the streets it's becoming increasingly unpleasant to walk in the downtown area of many cities a third thing that happens male and female differences just disappear and we tend to become absolutely convinced that there is no difference what's more we'll punish anybody who suggests there is a difference between male and female that's right with animals the difference is not terribly important the difference is biological um, a stallion is a, a little bigger than a mare. 
a stallion will be um, <clears throat> a little more aggressive to ride than a mare or a gelding. Obviously, yeah, male and female makes a difference in animals, but it's biological. The difference between a lion and a lioness, the lion has a mane, the lioness doesn't, the lioness tends to do the kill for lunchtime, uh, but these are biological. The real difference between men and women, between human males and human females, is spiritual, not biological. The biological is neither here nor there. But if people are just the same as animals, then there is no spiritual. And therefore, there is no realistic difference between men and women. Hello, welcome to the 21st century. When you get rid of the right beliefs, the wrong beliefs sneak their way into the hearts of mankind. That's what happens. Uh, distrust of money would be the fourth and perhaps the final for today. Uh, money is supremely spiritual, but animals are basically physical. They're materialist. When I say animals are materialist, I don't mean in the way it's used culturally. Oh, she's such a materialistic woman. No, I don't mean that. Materialist meaning there's, they're all physical. There's, you know, anyone would agree that when you look at a human being, whether you're thinking of that human being as an employee or a business partner or a life partner or a mate, uh, you are to some extent looking at physical and to some extent you're looking at spiritual. And it's hard to say which is more important. As a matter of fact, when a, um, uh, when a spouse, and this sometimes happens, I've, I've encountered it, uh, where after a couple has been married for a number of years, uh, one of them has a severe physical setback, amputation of a limb, uh, <clears throat> inability to have children. All kinds of things happen in life, right? And in the overwhelming majority of these cases, the couples have stayed together, right? Because we can tolerate physical imperfection. But when something goes wrong with a spiritual makeup of a partner in a marriage, it almost always means the end of the marriage. Uh, when one of the spouses reveals a hidden vice, there's, a, there's something they do, which is spiritual in nature, but it's something they do, and it is not who they purported to be. They've revealed a part of their spiritual makeup that isn't who they were. Very difficult to save that kind of marriage. Very difficult indeed. Right? When... Um, uh, when a, one of the parties to a marriage um, starts engaging in crime and justifying it. The other partner almost always says, this is not the person I married, I can't stay married. And we get it, we understand. Animals are basically physical in nature. Human beings are both physical and spiritual. If human beings are the same as animals... Well, then we're just all physical as well. And therefore, things like money, which are superbly spiritual, animals have no contact with money. Animals don't understand money. Animals don't value money, and neither should they, because money represents a promise between human beings. And so uh, animals have no understanding of money. And so human beings who believe the dogma that people equals animals tend to embrace this idea that money is distrustful, money is bad. People who have money, mm, they must pay their fair share. They have to be penalized because there's something wrong with them. The rich must be taxed because they've got money. And money is not proof that you have served your fellow human beings. No, 
it's a proof that somehow you've taken something and it's mysterious and how you got it isn't clear. And animals don't do this. People do. And therefore, money is distrusted. And this is why you are treated to the hilarious sight of politicians who in real life and in truth were raised in very comfortable upper-middle-class circumstances and better, concoct these ridiculous stories of growing up with nothing, growing up with poverty, because they've bought into the idea that having money is bad in the same way that having money for an animal to have money is meaningless. It's wrong. It's silly. right? If an animal's hungry, you don't give it money. If a person is hungry, you give the person money. But the distrust of money flows as well from this belief that people equals animals. Okay, uh, therefore, I stress again that perhaps among the most important things you could do during the course of the next couple of days is really sit down quietly by yourself and maybe with someone you trust profoundly and figure out what are some of your beliefs. Explore the good beliefs you have and explore the bad beliefs you have. And somewhere you will find in those beliefs you have, you will find bad actions and behavior and tendencies coming from bad beliefs, and you will have good consequences flowing from true and good beliefs. Worthwhile doing and truly a technique for changing the, tra the trajectory of your life how you are doing socially, how are you doing matrimonially. Let's say you want to get married and you're having awful trouble finding somebody to marry you. Look into your beliefs. Maybe your marriage isn't going as well as it should. Well, maybe you and your spouse have drifted apart, not geographically, not in taste, not in entertainment, but in beliefs. And that feels awful. Economically, financially, business-wise, bad beliefs, very bad consequences. So go ahead, explore these things, and do be sure to um, let me know. Let me know how it goes. Let me know some of the beliefs you're finding. Uh, best place, by the way, is our Facebook page called Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. So all you have to do is head over to your Facebook, go to the page called Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. And uh, we can discuss uh, this show right there. That's the truth. If should you want to communicate more privately, then you go to our website, right? RabbiDanielLappin.com. And there's a Contact Us tab, uh, easily findable on the, on the webpage. And uh, you can reach us that way. Send us an email. Uh, you might have a specific question. Use the Ask the Rabbi page. I would also recommend that you visit our store where a delightful product called the Biblical Blueprint Set can be found. This is five audio programs. You can download it right away now, or you can have it mailed to you, whichever you prefer. But it includes a program, one of my favorites, which is The Perils of Profanity. You are what you speak. And nowhere is this truer in your belief system. In other words, shaping what you say and what you write impacts your beliefs as well. And uh, there's a lot of information on that in that particular audio program in the Biblical Blueprint set. 
there is also uh, Boost Your Income is a fantastic program in that set as well. All in all, there are five terrific uh, programs. And at RabbiDanielLappin.com, I'd like you to take a look at the Biblical Blueprint set. Uh, what's so nice about that is that it comes in a set of five. You may already have two of them. Maybe you don't have any of them, but if you have two of them, there's three of them that'll come at a special price now that uh, serve as a wonderful gift for the holidays. Fantastic. Good gift. And uh, there are many other gifts as well at the store at RabbiDanielLappin.com. Let us do some business together, shall we? Uh, find something there that the purchase of which will benefit you. Got to benefit you. And the purchase obviously benefits me as well. We both smile at the end of a transaction at the store at rabbidaniellappin.com. So, uh, thanks for being part of the show. Thank you for spreading word on the show. Really appreciate that. Many of you are doing that, and uh, and and it's it's turning out to be very effective, as I've pointed out in the past. Uh, our listenership is going through the roof, and. Uh, and it's great. I mean, I, I feel a growing sense of community with people who may or may not share all my beliefs, but we obviously share some beliefs because here we are together, and that is absolutely fantastic. So uh, thank you for being part of the show. I want to wish you a wonderful week ahead, a week of good times with your faith, good times with your family, good times with your friends, and good times with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.